This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me. Great to have you here for another episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. Of course, you can visit the website, australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. If you want to email us for any reason, australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Send in your voicemails, send in your emails. We'd love to hear from you and read out those emails and voicemails on our next Straight Shooting Podcast. If you go to the website, you can see the Leave Voicemail button on the right-hand side scroll bar. So click that, uh, leave us a voicemail or anything you want to talk about or topics you want to discuss, and we'll play it on the next Straight Shooting Podcast. Of course, as usual, I want to thank all my Patreon supporters for throwing a few bucks my way. That's really appreciating. If you want to subscribe and help me out on Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash AHP. For a few bucks, you'll get all the podcasts uh, in advance of everyone else. And if there's any of my Patreon supporters that want me to interview someone, they want to hear certain topics, you know, again, please email me as well. Let me know on Patreon as well because uh, I want to give the content that you guys like and enjoy. And we had really, really good results with the 365 Precision Training Reloading for Accuracy with Mitch Brewer. Uh, Very, very good podcast. Absolutely crazy numbers on downloads for that podcast. I'm really excited about that. Uh, And then I followed up with Mark Bourne from Kestrel AU, which basically are about weather meters and long-range shooting solutions, and that did really well as well. So it seems to be a lot of you guys are really liking that long-range shooting type stuff. So I'm going to try and do a bit more of that in-depth, you know, reloading, long-range shooting, getting the best out of your gear. So hopefully you guys enjoy that for the future. I'm going to try and get and do a lot more of that because clearly that really that really rates as well. So that's some quite exciting times ahead. Uh, I got contacted by Adrian. He's a campaign coordinator for the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party in Tasmania. Uh, I interviewed his wife for our Everyday Hunter series and uh, an absolutely fantastic podcast on a family that loves to hunt, shoot, get out there and utilize game meets. So he sent me an email and he said he wanted me to, would I like to do an interview with Rebecca Byfield? She's the Senate candidate for Tasmania for the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party. And I said, absolutely. Why not? Would love to chat to Rebecca and find out what Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party in Tasmania uh, are going to try and organize and do policy-wise in regards to hunting, uh, shooting and fishing in Tasmania. So I'm looking forward to chatting to Rebecca. Uh, finding about her background, what she likes to do, finding out a bit more about her family and policy-wise in Tasmania, what we can hope to achieve over the, say, the next short to medium term over the next four years if elected. So uh, I'm going to bring Rebecca on the show. Rebecca Byfield, welcome to AHP. Thank you for joining me. Glad to have you here and uh, have a chat with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us about your uh, history. I want to find out a bit more about yourself, uh, who you are. Give us a bit of background. Um, Yeah, I'm... uh currently living in Tasmania, but um, I grew up in Victoria on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, Lived overseas for about 12 years. So uh, when my husband and I were early married, um, we headed over to Papua New Guinea for for a work opportunity, lived in Papua New Guinea for six years, uh, then headed to the Middle East, lived in Saudi Arabia of all places, uh, spent five years there um, and then we moved back to Australia and we sort of landed in Tasmania and we've been here ever since and doubt we'll leave because we've kind of fallen in love with the place so (laughs) what's Saudi Arabia like I've never obviously been there myself is it 
different, I guess, if you've been there. It is. It's very different. Like um, a lot of people go to Dubai and sort of go, oh, you know, that must be what the, the whole Middle East is like. No. Um, Dubai is beautiful. I love Dubai. Um, very modern, very affluent, all of those sorts of things. Saudi Arabia has pockets of that, and, and Saudi Arabia obviously has enormous wealth, but also enormous poverty as well. And it's and it's a country where um, I, I don't think people quite realise how much um, the religion integrates into every part of life. So you have uh, called prayer five five times a day, um, and that means if you're in the shopping centre, the door's shut, you're stuck in there for, for 40 minutes while they, they do their prayers. Um, so it, it, it just is integrated into every single part of your life. Wow, sounds interesting. Definitely mm. probably an interesting part of your life there. What about Tasmania versus Victoria? What do you think in regards <laughs> to obviously growing up in Victoria and then moving to Tasmania? What are the major differences that you see yeah, between well, the two? When I when I grew up uh, in Victoria, I, like I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula, so um, and back then it was quite rural, so it was quiet. It was you know little almost country town, but not country town. Um, you know, I grew up in a, a with horses, I showed horses and and rode a lot, and you know hung out with my friends out in the paddocks and things like that. So it was it was quite rural where I where I grew up. Um, now I go back and it's like wow, what happened? This place has just exploded, and it's like the traffic in Melbourne is is just horrific. You know the crowds, the, the just the the you know my my small town that I grew up in is is like a metropolis now. It's got its own McDonald's and all of these different things. Whereas when I grew up, I had the corner the corner store. So I go back, and while I love the infrastructure that Melbourne has, I cannot stand the the size and the busyness. So yeah, I really like that about Tasmania. I can I'm sort of just out of the city of Hobart, um, and you know anywhere in half an hour sort of thing so um people complain about the traffic here and and there is definitely some some challenges with with traffic but you know when you've lived on the mainland um yeah the traffic here is is kind of nothing interesting i've never actually been there before my my mum and dad have been down there they quite like it one of my um aunties and uncles moved down there i think i'm not 100 percent sure where i've never actually been down there but uh, i can imagine it's probably a little bit cold in winter that's what my mum told me anyway it is cold in winter, but we actually have nicer weather than Melbourne and Sydney. So, you know, beautiful sunny days here in winter. So um, crisp, but but um, sunny. So I, I really enjoy the weather here. Uh, it doesn't get too hot in summer, but it's, we certainly have the warm weather. So, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful state. Did you grow up in a hunting family? Uh, no, I didn't. So my dad, um, you know, he, he grew up in a rural area as well. So he shot rabbits when he was a kid, but it was never really... Uh, what you call a hunting family. Um, we grew up in a rural, as I said, in a rural area. So my mum used to buy the milk straight from the from the dairy. Um, we had our own chickens that that we killed um, and ate. Uh, they'd been eating pigeon during a poorer period of our lives. Um, so you know, being I, I had a, a full understanding of of where my food came from, you know, from a from a child. So, um, but no, not a hunting family per se. Interesting. Uh, I want to talk about, uh, you said you, I'll talk about your family and a business in just a few moments. When you first met your husband, obviously you're probably a hunter from way back. and uh, Yeah, yeah. Rod's, probably... Rod's, been, Rod's been hunting basically since he was a child. So, you know, he was trapping rabbits and, and um, uh, shooting foxes and things like that from the time he was six, you know. So it, it was 
very much ingrained. He he did grow up in a farming family um, and in a little country town in, in New South Wales, so in a place called Candos. Oh, Candos, yeah, just over the mountains, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he grew up there, um, and so yeah, he he was hunting his whole life. So when I met him, I I knew this about him. I'd been to his you know country town, met his family, um, so I knew it. But it was sort of you know we were living in the city, so it didn't really um, enter our lifestyle as much. Um, he'd just go home and he'd go for a hunt when he was at home, but it was just sort of not part of our everyday um, until actually when we were living overseas and he went on a, a hunting trip um, and I think he, he got the bug again and that was it. You know, it was like, I have to do this. I have to do it more. I, I, I've missed this side of my life. So that's kind of when it entered our our, our life in a big way. So. It almost sounds like the same thing as me when I went overseas and Ever since I got back from going overseas, I was like, I'm hooked again. I need to yeah, yeah. You know, check my license again. I found it was out by about six weeks. And I was like, oh, no. So I had to reapply. <laughs> Didn't yeah. have any firearms, obviously, at the time. And then ever yeah. since then, it's been up and up and up. Yeah. So and that was that was him. So the, he took my son on his first hunting trip in Africa. So they in, in South Africa, uh, we had friends that were living over there at the time. So we went and stayed with them for about five weeks. And then he went and... He found an outfitter somewhere there and, um, yeah, they went and hunted and, you know, had a great time. So, you know, they were hunting antelope, so not much different to deer. Um, and and that's kind of where our business took off from because from that, uh, the outfitter that he went with, we he, he was brilliant. He really helped Rod out of a bind with um, uh, the, the trophies, um, the freight company went broke and we nearly lost all the trophies um so my son my son's first trophy uh was going to not eventuate um and the outfitter sort of went above and beyond and got the local police involved and managed to recover all of the trophies for us so rod had always said to to Dylan, if you want a reference i'm more than happy to give you one and sort of that happened for for quite a few years so anyone that was sort of um booking from Australia, Rod would be the point of reference. And then that kind of developed into an agency side of things where um, he asked us if we'd officially agent for him. We said yes. And then that sort of grew. We, we added the New Zealand outfitter that we were travelling to. And now we've got um, Northern Territory and Tasmania as well. So it's all been built off and, and we kind of have this strong um undercurrent in our business that we'll never send anyone on a hunt that we have not personally hunted ourselves. We want to know the experience that they're going to get. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% to the eye light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit osaaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. It's interesting how your husband was in Candos. Were you in Victoria at the time? How did you actually cross paths? I find that very interesting as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I grew up in, as I said, in, in Victoria. Um, I went up to Sydney, I think I was 18, um, went and stayed with some family, family friends, um, 
ended up making a spontaneous decision that I wanted to move to Sydney. Um, so I returned home, told my parents I'm moving to Sydney. Um, Dad drove me up there um, and dropped me off at our family friends. And yeah, that's where I ended up meeting my husband and we ended up married. And yeah, so he was living in Sydney at the time as well. He'd moved down to Sydney and yeah, that was where we met. So, you know, the whole sliding doors thing. Very interesting. Uh, you run Hunchak. Tell us about that business. Yeah, so I started to just sort of say that just then. Hunchak started as as a as a pure hunting agency, so just um, agenting for these outfitters overseas. Um, and then it kind of grew from there. So we started writing a bit of content. My background's in journalism, so I'd write some articles and things like that. And we found there was so much interest in um, that side of, of things that um, – we, we just saw that there was a need and there was a lot of that around the education. So we, we had so much interest in the education side of things. We started offering educational hunts. So for people who um, might be interested in getting into hunting but haven't grown up in a hunting family or don't know where to start. So all of our uh, outfits offer educational hunting programs. So we've had a guy from um, Belgium, of all places, uh, go over and stay with our uh, outfitter in New Zealand and do the full educational hunt thing. So he learnt how to do the whole thing, um, learnt how to, to spot and stalk the animals, how to break them down, all of those sorts of things. So um, we saw this real need for that in the industry. I mean, Hunting agencies for for the big trophies, they're a dime a dozen, and it's not really an area we wanted to be in. Like we have trophies on the wall, but none of them are massive. It's all the the personal experience, the story. It's it's what we took from the hunt, not the size of the size of the antlers or anything like that. Um, and for us, it's all about that fair chase experience. You know, don't want to go out, jump off a helicopter, shoot the the monster in the paddock that's been you know, grain fed, fed, jump back on a helicopter and fly out. That's not what hunting's about for us. So. Tell us about your family, the family of hunters, who's in the family and, and what do they like to hunt and do? So, yeah, as I said, my husband, Rod, um, loves hunting anything. Um, you know, he's got he's just discovered a, a new passion for hunting water buffalo up in Northern Territory. Um, he, but probably his favourite animal is the goat, the, the old humble goat. So he, he quite likes shooting those. Um I have three children. So my eldest daughter, Jessica, is 25. Uh, she works in the business as well. Um, I have another daughter, Natasha, who's 23. Uh, and then a son, Kieran, who's um, 21, and he's studying law at uni. So all oh, adult children, got one grandchild and another on the way. Um, and, yeah, so Kieran probably started hunting the earliest. He started hunting uh, with Rod in Africa back when he was 10. Um, Tash probably picked up hunting when she was about 14. So when we moved to Tasmania, um, she got into the hunting there. Um, and then Jess, who we actually thought was going to be turn out to be a vegetarian, she was such an animal lover. Um, she still is to this day. She is an animal lover. Um, you know, she'd cry if we ran over an animal by accident, you know, that kind of person. But she's probably become our most passionate hunter and she got into it when she was about 17. So she went, she was in boarding school um, and she went and stayed with some friends of hers on a rural property up in central Queensland and, you know, had her first attempt at hunting up there and sort of fell in love with it. So. I was going to ask you that, which one has the most passion for hunting, but I guess you just told me that. So <laughs> yeah. it's interesting, yeah, isn't is, it, how people Jess develop? Is definitely, 
Yeah. And and it's funny too because there's there's kind of this rhetoric um in the media that, you know, if you're a hunter you must hate animals. And it's like this it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, Jess will still go out there and hunt animals, but she'll check their pouches and make sure that they're you know, she's really ethical about things like that. And she still loves animals um passionately, but realizes that you can do both. So very interesting. Now, definitely some good background. You just got your firearms license. Tell me about I that. Did, now, people yeah. might be a bit shocked to say, what, she doesn't have a firearms license until just <laughs> recently living in a hunting family? But tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was like I've always supported it. Um, probably, oh, well, I say supported it. When Rod first started telling me about hunting, I was like, what? You know, it's like, oh, you, you kill the animals? Uh, but, you know, I've always eaten meat. So I kind of had to address the hypocrisy of my own um, aversion. Um, so yeah, that was sort of early on. And then, you know, the more he did it, the more I just became accustomed to it. Um, I'd go out on hunts with him, but not necessarily have any desire to pick up the rifle myself. Um, and then once the animal was sort of on the ground, I was quite happy to help process the meat and things like that. And certainly love cooking game meat. Um, so for me, that was always the case. I'd never really shot a, a rifle or a firearm before. Uh, I think a couple of years back down here at one of the open days at the range, um, they had a clay pigeon shoot and Rod said to me, you know, oh, do you want to have a go? Picked up the, the shotgun, shot it at the clay pigeon, missed everything. Um, and, you know, I'm quite short, so <laughs> big, long shotgun. It kicked, it hurt. I went, no, thank you. I'm not interested. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and that was kind of me. I'd written off, you know, it hurts. I don't want to touch it sort of thing. And then um, I didn't really think anything more about it until last year. I think he was down the range and he was shooting um, a Bissloy plate at about 100 yards. And so um, and he just said to me again, he goes, do you want to have a go? And I was like, oh, oh I don't know. So anyway, I finally gave in and, and had a go and I hit the plate. And I was like, all right, I just hit the plate at 100 metres. I didn't think I could hit anything. I didn't think I had the ability. Um, so he said, I'll have another go. So I hit it a second time, missed the third time. So, you know, two out of three, eight bad sort of thing. So, um, so I kind of thought, well, I can do it. I have the skill to be able to do it. Um, and then we went to New Zealand last year. Family all went out hunting. I did my bit and stayed behind and babysat my grand grandson. And so for the first time, it was like they were coming back from these from these hunts and they were telling all their stories and laughing about their experiences and all the fun things that they did and talking about, you know, getting up close to this animal. And for the first time, I actually had this, like, it was not just a, oh yeah, you know, good on yous. It was like, oh my god, I want to be part of that. I want to do that. I want to experience that. And that was kind of where it started. So I came back from New Zealand and went straight into firearms, uh, well, to services TAS, and applied for my firearms license. Nice. Uh, I was talking interesting. So what you, you had a go of the clay target, you shot the uh, the gong, and what, now you've been in it. Now have you shot anything else, or had any chance to shoot, you know, some pistols or something, or any um, disciplines? I've been or? Yeah, no, I, so I we, we do a bit of crop protection as a family. So we um, have a farm here that we do crop protection on. Um, so I have shot a number of wallabies, um, a couple of possums, so nothing big, nothing, certainly nothing um, all worthy. Um, but, you know, I'm quite happy sort of starting 
at the bottom and working my way up. Um, I'm hoping to go on a deer hunt later this year. Um, when we were when we were in Africa last year, I actually went on a spot and stalk hunt for a water buck um, and did was not successful. So um, I missed the target by by miles. So um, and then I could, that was kind of where I was like, oh, I'm trying to jump too far ahead. I need to sort of work my way through the basics. Um, and I st- sort of really stopped and, and questioned myself and was like, you know, <sighs> I'm jumping to the top of the ladder. I'm going for this beautiful trophy animal and I've never shot anything. So, you know, is this really the way I want to do my hunting? So, yeah. So you shot wallabies so far, anything else? Uh, or possums and possums, I should say, yeah, possums. Yeah, that's that's it so far. So so no rabbits or anything like that? No, oh, yeah, really? I did. Sorry, I have shot a rabbit up on my parents' farm. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it certainly hooks you, doesn't it? Really does. Yeah, uh, it does. I never yeah. thought I'd be so much into the. You know, I used to love. Well, I still do. I still love my bird hunting. But uh, when you do get into deer hunting, and I just went away for five days over the Easter long weekend and didn't get anything. But it's not just about that too. I think it's about the camaraderie. And I've got a lot of friends that go deer hunting, and they love it too. But you get the odd one or two, like oh, what you four days and you don't fire a shot, and nah, they're like. If I'm not shooting in 20 or 30 minutes, like something's wrong if we're not, you know, having fun and, and shooting gongs or this or that. I said, well, you, A, you can't do that public land. But if you do have that yeah. and access yeah. to that, well, that, that that's great. But uh, a lot of people can't handle the, you know, going out for four or five days and sort of not shooting anything, you know. No, we, we quite enjoy that as a family. So, um, you know, and we, we kind of have a saying in the business that it's not shopping, it's hunting. So, you know, it's not – we don't give guarantees to anybody. You know, they're a wild animal. We can't guarantee the size of the trophy that the antler's going to be. We can't guarantee you're going to get a, a kill shot. But, you know, we're going to do everything we can to, to give you that opportunity. So, um, and that's what hunting is about. It's not about, um, you know, if you want guarantees, go to the shop. Go down to the butcher and buy your meat, you know. But if you want the experience of hunting, then, you know, get out there and do that. And, and you know, because we primarily spot and stalk hunt, it's all on foot. So, you know, it's, you know, some of the hunts that, that my, my family have done, you know, it's three days to get a, a blue wildebeest in in South Africa on foot, three hard days. You know, my daughter bow hunted a Nyala in, in Africa. It was a four-day hunt sort of thing. So, um all these people that say that, that that hunting is easy, you know, they've obviously never been. No, I don't think I don't think they have either. But um, the yeah. game meat, I want to talk about that too because I think that's uh-huh. very important. So when you get the game meat, what do you like to make? Is it a staple of the household? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I would suggest probably ninety percent of the meat we eat is game meat, um, and whatever isn't is like you know I. I pride myself on trying to be as ethical in my food choices as I can. So I buy my fruit and vegetables locally um, and any meat that we haven't hunted ourselves, we buy locally as well. I try and avoid buying meat from from Coles and Woolies. Doesn't mean I haven't grabbed, you know, the odd chicken on the way home, but I just try and avoid it. So, um, yeah, we've got venison, we've got buffalo, we've got duck, we've got all sorts of things in our freezer and I love to cook it. So, And I love to experiment with how we cook it. So we've got, you know... um, you know, the sous vide machine, um, you know, so, yeah, so we get those out. And, and I mean, all, all these people, and I hear so many hunters say it, oh, game meat tastes like crap, you know, it's, it's so gamey and tough. And it's like, man, 
all meat would be like that if you didn't prepare it properly. Um, so Rod used to, you know, many, many years ago when we first got married, used to work in an abattoir. So he's just applied all of those same principles to game meat. So, you know, you get the skin off as fast as you can um, because, you know, the, the, there's flavours that leach into that meat if you leave the, the skin on. Um, you cool the meat down as quickly as you can. You age the meat. Um, you, you take care of the meat. And, you know, we've never had a bad experience with our meat. It all tastes fantastic. And we've given it um, to, to non-hunters and people that you know, we've, we've had people sit at the table going, I hate venison. I've had it before. It's disgusting. And we've served it to them and they've gone, oh, that just tastes like I feel it. It's crazy, isn't it? And uh, I notice when I go out too, and I'm, I'm still learning in how to prepare animals. I've probably done about 30 or so. And even when I still go and do it, I'm like, oh, how did I get this off? Where's that joint knuckle? Yeah, B- yeah. Butchering and preparing an animal is really a sincere art, I think. And I've got a lot, of, a lot of respect for butchers and people that know how to prepare and process animals because it does take a long time to learn. Hence, I guess the reason why an apprenticeship in butchery is probably three or four years. So, <laughs> Yeah, um, exactly. And so. It, it, it's a good skill to have. And that's probably where we've sort of seen our business start to um, divert is now into that education side of things. So um, we've started a, a new website, I Am Hunter, um, and it's all about the education side. So um, and, and I probably notice this the most coming into hunting late. Um, just what a, a, a massive skills gap we have here in Australia. Um, you, you go, you 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 wait four or five months to, to do your firearms course. Um, you go, you do your day at the at, at the TAFE, TAFE course. They run you through all this safety stuff. You shoot shoot the rifles a couple of times and you're licensed. And it's like, you know, go out and hunt and, you know, do your thing. And it's like, but I know nothing. I, I, I know next to nothing. You know, it's like, where do I shoot on the animal? How do I get close to that animal? What do I need to actually do? How do I break it down afterwards? Now, I have a perfect teacher at hand that, that, that can show me that. But what about all the people that don't have that? They don't have the benefit of somebody um, mentoring them through this. You know, they're, they're just out there trying to figure it out themselves. Um, and so that's, you know, we just started putting together a few basic videos, like, you know, how we break down the, the meat and how we, you know, um, I say we. I, I'm not the experienced one in any of this. But, <laughs> Do you but mean your husband? Right. Yeah. No, the girls. The girls are really good at this too. Like my girls will break down a deer, um, and they they pride themselves on doing it all themselves. So you know, um, when we were in New Zealand last year, Jess, you know, she she shot her her red deer, and she face caped it herself. And you know, I was watching her do this, and this is an intricate. Ah, and she's just figured it out herself. You know, Rod showed her some basic skinning techniques and things like that, and she's just, you know, she's going to get it. She's a perfectionist, so she's got a bit of OCD. And, you know, she she's done that whole thing herself and, and face-caked it out for, for the taxidermist. So all of those sorts of things. The girls aren't afraid to get in there and get their hands dirty. It is a real skill, that's for sure, and very, very oh. rewarding, I might add. I, I thought initially that, you know, when I struggled to get a deer for quite a long time, probably four or five years, I was just, I wanted to do it on my own. I got a lot of offers, which I 
discussed this on the show many times before and people give you offers you know doing a show and I was like no I'm not I don't want I want to do it myself I, I don't want people to hand it to me on a plate I just you know the offers that roll in when you're telling people you can't get a deer for five years they're like what are you doing wrong and I said well I've, I've had the opportunity I just uh, wrong place wrong times that they're on my right they're going over my shoulder I've made too much noise whichever way it just never worked out and when I first got it I thought yep shooting's the hardest part the rest is going to be easy well how wrong was i uh the the easiest part is actually shooting them the harder part is then the preparation yeah the what you do afterwards yeah how Absolutely. do you get it out of the field like we had a, a one of the guys that follows us on social media and then he sort of developed a bit of a friendship with with um jeff and he said to her the other day because he, he's the same he's here hunting in tasmania and um he's new reasonably new to hunting so he's been out looking for his first year and he finally got it this year and he said you know i'm a reasonably fit guy he said but it wasn't until i had to carry that thing out that i realized how unfit i am for hunting and how much fitness hunting requires now Rod, uh, we, we've got a personal trainer that comes, you know, three or four times a week and, and trains us because we're too lazy to go to the gym. Um, but it's it's all about getting fit for hunting. Like uh, the first time Rod went to New Zealand and had to climb those hills, it nearly killed him. And it was like, no, I, I, if I want to do this, I've got to do it seriously. So, you know, we're, we're kind of developing a program for, for our website about helping people get hunt fit. You know, it's like because it, – it's it's a necessity, you know. It's not just about pumping some iron in the gym. You know, there's there's certain fitness levels that you need to be able to get out there and and do the hard yards. So. No, I totally agree. That's something I've been thinking about for actually the last probably three or four months. Is talking to someone about. You know, me not being the smallest guy either about, you know, diets and, and things that are going to get your hunt fit and things because I've seen those hills in New Zealand and I can tell you what, <laughs> yeah, they're, my they're pretty... body is not going to make it. It's not going to make it, you know, a bit soft around the edges, so to speak. Yeah, so. well, that was that was my husband and myself, you know, like um, and we went on a after, after we went to New Zealand the first time, we kind of embarked on a bit of a keto diet and um, and got this personal trainer and, and you know, stair runs, weighted stair runs, uh, you know, all of this sort of stuff and it's and and you know with the instruction we've given her is we want to be fit for hunting we want to be able to get up those hills we want to have strength in the legs and you know the cardiovascular um fitness to be able to to handle it so i don't know if you follow jim shockey in the states yeah his daughter yeah yeah yeah. so jim shockey you know in his 60s, I'm pretty sure. And every day he's out and he's walking up this hill every day because he wants to be, he calls it sheep fit or something like that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, because he's up there in the mountains hunting sheep and it's like you can't do this with with no fitness. You have to, it's, it's not about, you know, working out in the gym for your ego. You have to do it. No, you're right. It's definitely something I need to do a lot more of, that's for sure. <laughs> the I Am A Hunter website, what was the motivation to to get started on a website? Yeah, so um, it kind of um, it, it was two motivations for it. One was, as I said, the the hunt shack side of the business was always about the agency, but we we found so much interest in the content. So we were just developing some content to keep stuff you know flowing over when we weren't out hunting ourselves, and that was the stuff that was really gaining traction. And I mean, at the end of the day, we've we've got quite a decent following, and. In this day and age, not everyone's going to go on a on an overseas hunt. We know that. So, if you if you look at the percentages of our of our followers, probably 
one to two percent of the, the people who follow us are actually ever going to book a hunt through us. So it's like, how do we really begin to engage the people that have taken the time to follow us as a business? Um, they're interested in what we're doing. And, and we had a lot of people talking to us about, oh, you, you know, you're really ethical. You're, you're, you're into the safety. You're into that, that um, getting out and having the experience. We want to learn more about this. So we just started to go, okay, well, you know, there, there's a need for this side of, uh, and as I said earlier, the, the educational side of things, people that are new to hunting or have come to hunting later in life and they just don't know the basics, that, that they're struggling their way through. So we started to create some stuff around that. And then the second aspect of it was really the change that's that's sort of come about on social media, like the, the censorship um, of anything hunting or firearms related. Um the, the anti stuff, like, I mean, we have a, a partic- particular way that we handle it and it's generally block and delete, you know, not going to engage in your BS. Um, you come to our site, you're hijacking our followers to preach your stuff. Go and get your own following, you know. So that's kind of been our, our motto, but that doesn't stop them, you know, reporting and our photos getting censored and all of that kind of stuff. We've had, you know, the, the typical, um, you know, death threats against, against um, you know, our, our grandson and things like that. No, oh, we're going to come and kill your dogs and all the, the bull crap that goes with it. So there was this... We saw that the, that um, social media was sort of becoming not the easiest place for hunters to be. And we also saw that a lot of hunters were saying, I'm scared to post my stuff on social media because it gets attacked. Or, you know, you, you see these people that they went on a trophy hunt and all of a sudden now they've lost their job and their front page news of some new newspaper somewhere. And people are sort of going, well, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to have that happen to me. So it was like, well, you know, I hate to say it, but we wanted to create a safe space for hunters to actually be able to to learn and to engage in in their sport without having to deal with all that crap. And um, and so that's why we made it membership-based. So it is actually a paying site. Um, and we did that simply to weed out um, the antis, you know. So uh, people have to, to pay to be a member there. So hopefully that, that weeds out um, all the people that are coming there just to cause trouble. So if you've got a free site that's accessible to everyone, you're just going to attract people that just want to cause trouble. It's interesting. A lot of people talking about posting on social media, and there was talk probably about a year ago or so. People saying, "Oh, you know, <laughs> you shouldn't post on social media." Now, this was some of the discussions within the firearms and hunting community. So, what's your thoughts on that in general? You think we should be able to share our our hunts? Obviously, not with you know foxes with their you know heads blown off, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I think that I think there's there's a need for sensitivity, um, and. Like if we're if we're posting a hunting shot or a trophy shot or something, you know, take the five minutes at you know to, to clean it up, to wipe away the blood, to make it look presentable. You know, there, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I don't quite go into the whole. I think meat eaters touched on a little bit where they don't post the the trophy pictures and and Yeti and a couple of these brands have gone. Oh, we're not supporting anyone who posts trophy pictures. Now, I personally have a view. So what is a trophy? I mean, a, a trophy at the end of the day is anything. I mean, a trophy is the leather seats in your car. It's the meat you take home. It's the the, the $3,000 Gucci handbag that you bought that's made out of pony skin. You know, what is a trophy? You know, we, we kind of demonise this word, 
Um, and so that's where we sort of looked at it as it's more about the education. It's it's taking and there is some like the hunting industry has kind of been its own worst enemy in that regard uh, because you do have people that are out there chasing you know size and oh I want this massive big head and all the rest of it and and some of the, even the scoring systems kind of play into that. But at the end of the day, the word trophy, what does it actually mean? Anything can be a trophy, in my opinion. Exactly. I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. A trophy to me in regards to that particular hunt, you know. And, yeah. You know. And, and, and we, we have trophies on the wall, but not one of them is based on ego. Not one of them is, oh, look at the size of this thing. It's when we, when we have people come around and we have a lot of people come to our house that aren't hunters and they all want to come in and see our trophies and we tell them the story of the hunt. You know, what that experience was, you know, how we went about it, you know, um, some of the, the, the memories and, you know, the times together as a family and, you know, the, the cultures that we experienced while we were over there and all of those sorts of things. That's what the trophy is about. It's a memento. It's, it's a postcard on your wall. Would you like to advertise on one of the most tech-savvy mediums on the internet? Then why don't you advertise with us on the Australian Hunting Podcast? If you have a product or business that you would like to promote, then we would love to hear from you. Become one of our partner advertisers by calling Jason on 0425 881 967 or email australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. That's why I don't like some of the companies, you know, and they're saying they're not going to do this or they're not going to do that. And inevitably it comes back to bite them in some way. I mean, I don't want to go into it as well, but, you know, there's some of the people that they sponsor, you know, just recent, just as, as much as recently even were, you know, done for illegal hunting and poaching, you know, so it's... I'm not going to mention any names, but you know no. th- th- this is the sort of issues. <laughs> we all know we, who you mean. Yeah. This is the sort of issues we have to we have to deal with, you know. And you know they make they make stands on certain things, and then their own people or their own brand ambassadors get caught. So I, I want to talk about obviously you got selected, or you maybe threw your hand up. You'll be able to tell me uh, getting involved with the Shooters, Fishers, and Farmers Party in Tasmania. So how did that come about, and why did you get involved? Yeah. Okay. So. Um... It was never something I set out for. So um, while I've always had a a strong interest in in politics and I think um, just being involved in the hunting industry, you kind of, you you learn to defend what what you're you're out there doing. So you learn to sort of um, formulate those arguments and and things like that. So, um, but I had no desire to go into politics and, and sort of, you know, never set out to. Uh, it kind of happened by accident. Um, I was at uh, an Australian Deer Association dinner. They had a guy over from the US talking about um, wildlife management and, and deer, you know, just feeding, you know, creating feed plots and things like that. And quite an interesting discussion. And, it, you know, I met this this couple there, we got talking. You know, generally, you know, as you do when you when you're talking, you get passionate about things. And we were talking about politics and the current scenarios and the, the current landscape of hunting and um, and you know all these big ideas of how we're going to solve the world issues. I didn't realise at the time that um, he worked for the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, and went home that night and said, "I've found our new candidate for for." Um, the federal election so you know I knew nothing about it until I got a a phone call a couple of days later and said you know we'd really like you to run and I'm like what (laughs) 
So, um, and then when I, you know, so they, they put the offer to me and, and I was sitting there going, no, 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 I don't want to do this politics. It's it's a dirty business. You know, it's, you live in a fishbowl. You know, it's like, do I want to be involved in this at all? And then I kind of really had to question myself. And it's like, well, you know, I'm, I've been complaining for years about what's wrong. But unless we've got people in there actually fighting for what we believe in, then, you know, am I part of the problem or part of the solution? So that was kind of where I made the decision that I, you know, I had this opportunity. I'd been given um, the chance to sort of, you know, help shape some policies. And, yeah, so I bit the bullet, so to speak, and, and decided to run. You, you mentioned something very interesting there about, uh, you know, politics being a dirty business. It is, I talk about quite a lot of this on the show. So do you feel, obviously, now that you want to get involved, if you are elected, are you going to be able to prosecute the case for a change in gun laws, have a terminology you'd like to use, uh, more hunting opportunities? And if so, how are you going to prosecute that case if elected? Uh, so for me, it's really, it's, it's about getting the voices in there. So, um, I mean, at the moment, we don't have anybody in there sort of, you know, putting our case forward, um, you get your Liberals and your Nationals that say they're pro-gun, but they're not really, um, or say they're pro-hunters, but they're not really. Um, and if we don't have people that are actually there going, well, hang on a second, let's look at this from from a factual point of view. Let's stop looking at the scary headlines and, and all the scary rhetoric and let's look at the actual facts. Let's look at the statistics. Let's look at, you know, um, I mean... Firearm deaths in Australia, what, 63 last year? Something like that. Something very, very minimal. Um, we've, we've got bigger problems with kids drowning in, in backyard swimming pools. Why isn't that sort of, you know, leading um, the policy talk in, in politics? You know, why aren't we talking about diabetes? You know, it's like it's not it's not like it's a contagious disease it's 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 lifestyle choices so why aren't we putting those things on the front burner because they're not popular they they i think firearms is an easy target for for the politicians because the general public don't understand and hey i say this you know coming from someone who never used to understand it myself i thought firearms were scary i thought that they were terrifying and you know they have to be respected that you know, you've got a, a a tool there that has the ability to to kill an animal you know so you do have to respect it but it's no it's no more scary than the chainsaw in your backyard or the knife in your kitchen or the car that you get in the car and and drive i mean how many more people die from drunk drunk drivers we're not calling for the the ban of of drinking so looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure at aussie outdoor gear you can find cooking equipment camo clothing for kids backpacks camo accessories and much more we cater for your hunting fishing camping hiking and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range aussieoutdoorgear.com.au quality gear at affordable prices the media are probably going to be quite, you know, tough on any new, you know, pro firearm party coming into Parliament in Tasmania. So how do you think we can deal with the the media a bit more effectively and uh, and uh, make the case, you know, to the general public and the media also? Uh, I think for for me, having kind of worked in that media side of things, so I've studied journalism. I worked as a freelance journalist for a lot of years, so I kind of understand how they operate. Um, 
And, and it's just putting the, the argument back out there. And, okay, we might not have the opportunity to do that through the mainstream media because they, they're not really interested in in um, giving a fair and balanced point of view. But in this day and age, we've got other avenues to do that. We've got your podcast. We've got other podcasts. We've got social media. We've got, you know, blogs. We've got all of these sorts of things that we've got that ability to get the message out there. And so, and I think... Definitely uh, in this day and age, and, and particularly this year, I, I think the major parties are scared. I think this is one of the reasons that Scott Morrison called the election with 37 days to go. You know, I commented on this before I even was asked to run for, for the Senate, um, that it was a cowardly move. It was like, what are you, what are you really saying here, Scott, that you're, you're scared? That's scared of the minor parties and their ability um, to, to sort of rain on your parade that you, you've got together with Labor and, and you've you've come up with this little backroom deal and you've you've set all your advertising up and you've got all that locked away and you're, you're basically giving the minor parties the minimum amount of time possible to try and um, prepare. Uh, they've done it for a reason and it's because they are scared. They realise that the general public, uh, they're disenfranchised with major parties. I've, I've voted Liberal my entire life, and this year it's, I've, I've turned around and gone, you know, for the first time ever, I, I look at them and it, there's not a single person that I want to back. They don't speak for the for the people anymore. They, they're all about themselves. Labor, Liberal, they're as bad as each other. Being, I find that interesting. I want to explore that, actually. So being in a hunting family, obviously being, you're probably... You're not, I don't want to say you're much older than me. I don't want to say that. I'm not sure how old you are, but let's I'm just 46. say 46. So <laughs> we'll put that one out there. Yeah, being in a hunting family, and I do hear this a lot from people. And I know there's more to see. I vote purely on firearms. I don't really care about much else. I do some on some economic matters and a few other bits and pieces, uh, which I'll probably preference some of those parties. But growing up in a hunting family of you know surrounding by firearms over probably the last you know, 25 to 30 years. How do you, I guess, not make peace? How do you think about it when we know in 96, you know, the Liberals were very tough on firearms owners, to say the least? So when moving forward with voting at the time for the Liberal Party, how did you sort of make peace with that? Is it, was it not on the firearm issue for yourself personally because it was more the family that was into it? I, I think, yeah, there was a little bit of that. And then there was a little bit of I bought into the lie that um, – what's the point in voting for the miners because they're never going to get in. It's always going to be Labor or Liberal. So you're kind of watering down your vote. You're weakening the government by, you know, giving these minor parties the ability to get in there. They can't for, you know, this is the fear-mongering that gets spread around. And I bought it. I bought it hook, line and sinker that, you know, if I vote for anyone else, I'm just wasting my vote. Um, and you know, Rod used to, we'd go to the, the polling booth and Rod would be, I'm, I'm voting for the Shooters and Fishers and Farmers Party, you know, and I'd be like, no, I'm just voting for Liberal, you know, I might give them a preference somewhere, but I'll just vote for Liberal. Um, because I kind of thought, well, better the devil you know, better, like overall, I felt like Liberal was better for the economy. Um, I didn't agree with all of their politics, but I agreed with more of their politics than I did of Labor. And it wasn't until this year that I really started to question and go, well, hang on a second, what is the the position of these minor parties? They're, okay, they're never going to form majority government, but look at look at what the Greens have been able to achieve, you know, and I'm no fan of the Greens, but look at what they've been able to achieve without ever forming a majority government, without ever being in power. They have influenced so much policy just by being in there. 
you know, and they're bad policies. <laughs> Nobody's saying they're good policies. In fact, I would actually consider the Greens to be one of the most cowardly um, they, they say they're humane and they're ethical and all this sort of stuff, but they're, they're a party that supports 1080 and aerial culling and all of these cowardly ways of dealing with wildlife problems. You know, so, but they've, they've, they've managed to get these through having very few people in there because there is that ability once you're in to be able to influence policies. Exactly. Tell us, I want to find out about your say top even two, two or three policies that uh, obviously are firearms and hunting related that you'd like to push for? And if so, how would you implement those policies if you were elected? So for me, um, one of the the big ones, um, So, and, and just sort of taking a, a brief step back there, I think for the Shooters and Fishers and Farmers Party, everybody knows that, you know, shooters is the first word in there, that we're going to have some policies around firearms. And I think the challenge for us has been saying, you know, saying to, to people, well, we're actually about more than just that, but we don't want to water down that either. So, but we are about more. We, we didn't want to come across as all you're interested in is the shooters. We had to have more policies that dealt with other things. And so I think that um, when I looked through all of the, the federal policies for Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, they made sense to me. They were sensible, common sense policies for all Australians. So there was nothing there that I went, oh, that's a bit on the nose. So, but going back to your question on what are the, the firearms policies, because obviously that's what you're interested in. Well, and, or, um, and or hunting, obviously. Yeah, the hunting well, stuff. So, you know, for me, it's um, I, I am strongly opposed to the National Firearms Register. Now, you and I have talked about that be, before, but I'm happy to talk about that. I just... It's not so much the idea of, of having one one place that, that this stuff is stored. I think, in theory, the idea is nice. In principle, it doesn't work. Um, we have seen time and time again, and now my husband works in, in technology, very senior in technology, um, and he's worked with foreign governments and all sorts of things on their IT security. So I probably know better than most how fallible these systems are. Now, we, we saw it with the census a couple of years back. Not only did it crash several times, it was a honeypot for, for hackers. It got hacked so many times. We've seen it with the My Health, um, you know, where top medical experts are saying this, this is a fallible system. Um, you're putting information out there. There's, the wrong people have got access to it. Um, and they're, they're recommending people opt out of it. Now, how many people have opted out of that? Um, they, when, you, when you put this kind of information in one place, you're creating a digital honeypot that, that just attracts criminals and hackers and all sorts of things. Now, if the Pentagon can't protect their data, they've been hacked. You know, some of the biggest named companies in the world have been hacked. Um, what's... To, what are they doing to actually secure the, the National Firearms Register? You did post on my page about this, and I found it very interesting. There is a lot of discussion about that. So a lot of people that I speak to uh, aren't even remotely interested and do not support a National Firearms Register. They don't support state registers. Uh, yet, yet there's organisations out there that do support uh, firearms registers. So uh, what are we going to do for the future? What will you be advocating actually for? And why do you think they're advocating for a National Firearms Register when nobody supports that? Uh, I don't know their reasoning. Um, I can assume, I can guess, but I don't know for certain what their reasoning is. Um, they probably just think that it's easier to have all that information in one place, um, that they, you know, they, they have all the bad 
bad guys or the potential bad guys in one easily searchable database. But by the same token, you're also you're saying you want to create safer, uh, a safer Australia that you want to, um, you know, we, we have to lock up our guns and things like that. But if people have access to this information, and we've we've seen this, we've spoken to the police here when they've come to check our firearms um, and our safes. You know, uh, we got broken into a couple of years ago, a month after my daughter re- registered at a pistol club, and they were only looking for pistols. It's like now. How did they know to look for pistols? We didn't actually have any pistols, but they made that assumption based on the fact that she'd registered with a with a local pistol club. And when the police came to our house, they said, this is a common thing. We see it all the time uh, where thieves know exactly where to go. They, they, they break into the shed and go to the exact place. They don't touch anything else. Where are they getting this information? So... I just, I just think when you have that stuff in one easy place, you're making it easier for criminals to find guns to steal. And if the if the government wants to reduce the amount of uh, illegal firearms in in the system, then why why the hell would you be making it easier for the criminals to get this? Just, uh, I just wanted to ask a supplementary question on that. If a national firearms register doesn't work, therefore a state register doesn't work either. Correct. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. I mean, any any form of having this uh, information in one one easy to find repository, um, it, it's fallible. It is really fallible. Now, I don't know what the answer is. I, I would suggest, um, you know, why why can't the local gun stores keep the the information for their customers? And if if an incident happens and and the police know where that 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 incident happened, they can check with the local firearm stores and, and get access to that information on an as-need basis. Why can't they do something like that instead of having all this stuff stored in one location? Since there's no, as far as I'm aware, no current national firearms register, therefore you'd be just opposing the introduction of that register, correct? Yep. Absolutely, yep. Okay, no problem. Perfect. All right, number two policy that you'd be looking at? Uh, so for me, it's um, around the the promoting of the safety and education programs. Now, I touched on it earlier. There's there's this massive gap between you know, getting licensed as a as a firearms owner um, and actually knowing what to to do after that that um, step. Now, having said that, I'll caveat it by saying I don't believe that we should be regulating and and making it um, a legal requirement for people to go and do these additional courses, but I think that we should be promoting them, that we should be having them available, that we should be encouraging people to go out and do this um, additional safety and education programs, that we should have um, the states, you know, nearly every state has a hunter education program that's available. Um, So I think that that would be good. I think also having, um, introducing people, like, I mean, when we were growing up, you know, you could go out and try um, shooting as, as a sport. You know, now it's like, oh, God, we can't do that. We can't encourage kids to, to try firearms, but we'll sit them in front of a TV with a video game and let them shoot with no reality and no uh, understanding of what the consequences of those actions are. I mean, if you're shooting a, a real rifle, you learn very quickly that that thing, you, you need to respect it. You know, I, th- I think that those kind of programs would be great to add to it to our young kids. Um, and then the other one would be mandatory sen- sentencing for firearms offences. Now, whenever politicians or the media or these think tanks come out, all they're talking about is how to make it 
tougher for, for legal firearms owners to get more firearms or to, to have access to firearms. But the problem has never been with the legal firearms owners, it's with the criminals. So we already have these laws in place, actually impose stricter penalties, make it a deterrent that if you commit these crimes, it's going to hurt. You, you, you're going to suffer the consequences instead of just making it, it's like their focus is on the wrong place. My only concern is, and maybe you can put my mind at ease with mandatory sentencing. I'm concerned on on both fronts. I think um, you know people are going to do jail time. I think it should be a lot more serious. I think it should be heavier penalties. My only concern with mandatory sentencing would be uh, the legislation, and you know, as you know, generally legislation forgets a lot of things. It uh, uh, you know, things that may not be put in that should be put in it. And my only main concern would be that if shooters trying to do the right thing get caught up in this mess, the how how, and they have to get a mandatory jail sentence, that is very, very concerning to me. So therefore, I, I probably wouldn't support that, but I would support some serious jail terms for people that are caught up trafficking firearms. I just hate to see an, a good, honest shooter for some very something very minor get caught in a jail sentence. I, I agree with you there, Jason, that it's... Um I'm not talking about mandatory sentencing for misdemeanours of, you know, you forgot to... Yeah lock your ammunition away or, you know, these these sorts of smaller things or you... Or an, an import of a firearm part that was, you know, done, hopefully done the correct way. You know, there's many multitude of areas they could get picked yeah, up on. Yeah, yeah. But, and I don't think that that's the case. I think that's a lot comes down to education and things like that and just making this information more freely available. But what I'm talking about is the mandatory sentencing for crimes. So for stuff that is, you know... Murdering somebody, killing somebody, you know, um, importing illegal firearms, um, trafficking illegal firearms, all of these sorts of things, um, you know, uh, an armed robbery, these sorts of things where people are um, going out and breaking a law that's already there, you know, um, but we're too soft on these things. There's not enough of a um, deterrent in our current laws. You know, our sentencing is lax at best at times. So, Agreed. We've, we've got a lot of young shooters coming up, you know, in the shooting sports, the hunting sports, everything to do with firearms. Now, there's been, well, as far as I've seen, no changes to the NFA, National Firearms Agreement, 23 years. Do you think it's too late to make changes? And if not, how would you uh, effectively advocate for said changes? Uh, I think that, I don't think that it's too late. I think that um, we can always make sensible changes. Um, and for me, how do I effectively advocate for change? I, uh, as I said earlier, I think we just need the voices in politics, people that um, are in there advocating for, for our rights. You know, there's, I, I'm not entirely sure of the exact number, but there's over a million firearms owners in, in Australia at the moment. I think 1.2 million something like that, you know, this is a decent portion of a society. It, it's a bigger portion than some of the minorities that currently get all the media attention. Uh, and yet we kind of get ignored a little bit, you know. It's kind of treated as, oh, you know, those people over there, they don't matter. So what we need is people in, in politics that are going, well, actually, we are a voice, you know. We are um, citizens. We're, we're legal citizens. Um, you know, firearms owners have probably got some of the strictest... Um, 
rules set on them. And in a lot of ways, we have our police checks. The police come to our house and check our firearms, check our safe. You know, they can turn up at any time. If we break any law at all, we we have our, our rifles confiscated from us. You know, what other part of society has that same level of... Um, and yet, you know, people are very quick to just go, oh, yeah, we can take take a few more rights off the uh, the firearms owners. Nobody cares. Well, we need people in politics that are saying, well, we care. Enrique, I guess we'll talk about Tasmania here because this is more important, obviously, to you running in Tasmania. But I guess this will be at what would be a national level because it'll be federal as well. So, uh, what do you think needs to change in, in regards to laws? What what do you what's the couple that you're seeing that you think no, this needs to change? There needs to be some advocacy towards this area. Um, I think more than anything, um, you know, here, particularly here in, in Tasmania, we've we've had a lot of um, influence from the Greens over the the last few years. They've they've had a, a big foothold in in politics here, um, and so they've implemented changes and policies that they're not good for the state. They're not good for anybody in the state, let alone just hunters, but it certainly impacts on hunters as well. So, um, you know, we've got very limited public land hunting here, have a very short season. Um, There's no bow hunting in the state at all, Um, you know, and then outside of the politics, you know, just even to get access to to private land is, is quite hard to come by because there's this level of distrust between hunters and farmers and, and, and landowners and things like that. So there's a lot of work that needs to be, be done there. Um, I'd love to see more land opened up. Um, you know, the Greens have locked up a lot of stuff in, in world heritage areas and, and things like that, um, you know, and, and they're trying to lock up even more, so... Well, they're saying Sarah Hanson Young could lose her position come up in the uh, in the in the election in a, in four to five weeks. So that would be very interesting if she was able to, even yeah. though she's from South Australia. Um, it'd be yeah. nice to see her, you know, lose her position. That would be quite quite fun to see, you know. Yeah, and as I said before, you know, like a lot of people have sort of bought into this idea that that the Greens are all about protecting the environment. But, you know, they're, they're preservationists, so they want to just keep the status quo as it is. They, they view humans as some type of, you know, invading species rather than an integral part of, of nature. I mean, we, we are a part of nature. We have been, we've been, you know, um, managing wildlife for, for thousands of years, you know, way back to the Indigenous people, you know, burning off and things like that. Um, you know, the, the, the Greens just don't see us as that. And then the other thing is around their, their views on wildlife. You know, they want to see deer um, listed as a, a feral pest and their end game is to have them eradicated completely. So, you know, as hunters, we don't want to see that. We, we believe that deer populations need to be sensibly managed, but we certainly don't want to see them eradicated. Um, they're, they're a viable food source um, for Australians. Um, and, you know, there's there's also revenue that the government could be making out of, uh, of tags and, and licences and things like that that could be going back into wildlife um, funding. I mean, look at the American system and how much money they have raised through hunting for, for conservation. It's interesting. You just said something. You can't bow hunt in the in the state of Tasmania. No, no, really. Yeah, I didn't Tasmania. actually know that. I've learned something new today. <laughs> Tasmania is one of the only states where it is completely legal to bow hunt, with the exception of one property that we actually happen to to have um, an agency agreement with. But um, and the only reason you can bow hunt on that property is it's a high fence property, and it's um, technically. 
listed as a meat property. Um, and so you can humanely uh, dispose of the animal in any way. So that allows you to bow hunting, but there is nowhere else in Tasmania you can bow hunt. What's their reasoning behind that? Do you know? <sighs> I have Stupidity no idea would be obviously the main yes, one. Yes, yeah, you know. exactly. So, you know, 1080 is fine, but don't bow hunt. I want to go over a couple of your topics, even though we just discussed a few of them you sent over to me. So promoting safety and education through uh, programs through firearms use. Just elaborate on that just a little bit more. Uh, yeah, so as I say, like um, for me, I just think that um, we have very limited opportunities here in Australia and, and I think being involved in the international hunting community, so, you know, we um, we have a lot to do with New Zealand and South Africa and, you know, we, we have contacts in America and so we, we look at how well established the hunting industries are in these, in these countries and Australia is like we, we just look at it and it's like, we have all these resources there. We have all these opportunities, um, but the hunting industry here is immature, um, and I don't mean that in a derogative sense. It's it's immature in the sense it's just not well established. Um, and then what also ends up ends up happening is we're actually there's a lot of infighting that happens in the hunting community here. So uh, rather than sort of standing as a united group, we're kind of too busy arguing and fighting with each other. So um, I, I, you know, am strongly of the opinion that we really need to to be educating um, hunters in Australia um, on ethics, even on things like um, you, you touched before on uh, poaching. You know, there are some blatant cases of poaching, and then there's also um, some other areas where it's inadvertent. You, you accidentally cross over a border and all of a sudden you're a poacher. Um, you shoot a deer on one side of a property and it goes over to the other and you go to retrieve that, you're now a poacher. Um, so there, there's, there's things like that that almost creates inadvertent criminals of people. I wanted to talk to, uh, you actually brought this one up too on uh, the email that we spoke about. You, know, you said castle doctrine and self-defence. Tell me about that. Okay, so, I mean, obviously... Um, you didn't just put this in there for me, did you? <laughs> no, 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 no. We, okay. we do believe in this, and it's Good. something that we've been putting a little bit of um, information out about lately. I mean, you can go the whole way down the, the the path of, you know, being able to defend ourselves in our homes with firearms and things like that. Um, and, you know, while I do think that, that we should have that right. I think that that's a long journey if we were to ever get there. Um, at the end of the day, though, we don't even have the basic rights to defend ourselves. You know, something as simple and, and you know, coming from a woman and I have two female, you know, two daughters, we don't have the right to defend ourselves against somebody that, that's trying to attack us. We can't use, you know, pepper spray or something as simple as that. Um we're told to, to call the police and that the police can come, but the police will admit that, that they can't always come, that they're limited in their resources, uh, and they don't come until after a crime's actually been committed. So it just makes sense to me that we should be able to have basic rights to, to self-defence. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That's uh, one I speak about quite a lot on this show. I think people should follow the law, but also, too, it's not going to stop me from uh, advocating for self-defence, which I think not necessarily that's what firearms were developed for back in the heyday, but, you know, it certainly was was a large aspect uh, of being able to defend yourself. I think it's very important. Yeah. Um, 
And if you take that to the to the next degree, Jason, you, you've got at the moment, we're seeing it all over the news at the moment with these vegans invading farms. You know, a lot of the time, these are mum and dad businesses. This is their home. This They've got their kids there and they've got 100 vegans turning up to protest to steal their animals. And, and these farmers have got no ability to defend themselves. They, they've got to sit there and wait for the police to turn up. And if the police actually do anything, because often they've got their hands tied and then they're not doing anything at all. Um, so farmers should have the right to be able to protect their livelihood and their ability to, to earn an income, uh, you know, without fear, without having these people turn up. Um, and, and a lot of cases, they're, they're not attacking the, the worst case scenarios of the industry. They're attacking the soft targets. I think in talking about that too, I think some people say, well, you know, self-defense is never going to happen. But I, I think that is something, whereas hunting and firearms ownership in general is well, only affects, you know, I said 1.2 million of us, which is quite a lot. But I think self-defense, as much as people may disagree per se, I think self-defense may be the, the easier one to push forward. And the reason I say that is because the general public need to be able to defend themselves. That's something they might be able to relate to. 50% of the population, you know, on, on average is, is female and you know the ability for us to be able to defend ourselves and it's not just women I mean that that's you know being I was really about to gender. say that then yeah yeah, yeah I was about to say that. <laughs> you know it, it like that's an it's an easy one to discuss because you know women are a little bit more vulnerable when it comes to our ability to fight back physically but that being said you know there's some alarming statistics out there about you know how many men are the victims of, of violent crime um you know men are something like five or six times more likely to be the victim of a violent crime than a female is. Um, you know, so all of these sorts of things, there is a, there's a, a really big need for, you know, our ability to, to use sensible self-defence. That doesn't have to be a lethal gun, just the ability to, to use sensible things. We can't even have that. Yeah, that's true. And I think that that affects, you know, should affect all of the general public or every individual. And I think that maybe sometime down the track, even for starting with non-lethal forms of self-defense is a start because it affects, you know, everybody, not just, you know, firearms owners and hunters. And the argument that's used against it is, you know, it's, oh, well, that, that can be turned around and used against you. Well, yeah, it can, but at least I've got a chance. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> any chance is better than no chance, you know, so... I love that morally superior position of well, in in this many percentage chance points, you could it could be used against you. Well, as opposed to what having nothing and being raped and murdered is that your morally superior position? Yeah, fantastic. Oh, we want to we want to take that to the nth degree. You know, like the the chances of the seatbelt saving my life in a car accident, not a hundred percent either. And and I, you know, in in just as many cases, the the seatbelt could actually cause more damage but do we advocate for stopping seatbelts you know it's like and I think this is where the whole thing about self-defense and firearms we don't use common sense you know we make these knee-jerk reactions but they're not based in common sense at all I agree I agree 100 percent 
Um, I think I've gone through, should we touch on that one? Yeah, scapegoating firearms owners and policing existing laws, but I guess that comes back up into uh, mandatory sentencing. Is there anything you wanted to add or not really on that one? Oh, just the, the fact, and I sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, and that's it's really just around, you know, whenever anybody is talking about gun laws or regulations around this, it's always aimed at the um, legal firearms owner. And it's like, well, they're not the problem. It's it's like the percentage of, uh, of crime that are happening or incidences that are happening that involve legal firearms is so slim that why are you even focusing on that when there are so many other things out there? Focus on the criminals and stop using legal firearms owners as a scapegoat, as an easy political point scoring. Big topic that's probably happened over the last couple of weeks is the the evil boogeyman, the National Rifle Association. NRA, good or bad? They are no different than any other lobbying um, agency. We actually had a discussion about this the other day and, and we were laughing about the sense that when anybody mentions the NRA in an article, and, and this happened when my daughter was um, researching the article on New Zealand. And so she read a lot of things and it's like, oh, the NRA is in here and they're trying to to, to win, win the argument and they're trying to influence things. And it's like you talk about the NRA like it's the IRA, like it's some, you know, terrorist organisation. But at the end of the day, it is no different than the SSAA. It's no different than, you know, the taking it aside from firearms. It's no different than half these unions that are out there. It's all about protecting the the interests and the um, the rights of their members. That's all it is. The NRA, at the end of the day, is there protecting the interests of its members. Um, and it, in, from that point of view, it's probably I, – I don't know the statistics on the membership of NRA, um, but it, it's probably one of the most powerful lobbying groups for that reason, but that's because it, it represents the, the interests of its members. That doesn't make it inherently good or bad. This, the, the way it's portrayed in the media is ridiculous. I think people are scared of them because they're, they're actually extremely successful. They know how to lobby uh, correctly. And we saw One Nation, as we <laughs> seen just recently, uh, overseas copying, copying an absolute bollocking and um don't, you know, don't even get me started on that one so uh, i want to just to <laughs> say a couple of a couple of things on that and just and i guess what you a what your general thoughts well i don't want to associate you know what you're doing in tasmania no with- and, and look you know i'm not supporting or crucifying one nation based on that but what i think is the bigger tragedy is why why have we not investigated the fact that al jazeera a foreign-owned newspaper source that's actually government-owned, so it's actually the Qatar government, you know, launched a three-year undercover investigation into One Nation um, and basically a setup of, of One Nation, and ABC helped them. Why aren't, why aren't we looking at that? Why aren't we going, well, why did you go to so much trouble to try to set up One Nation? That's the bigger concern to me. The fact that one nation, one nation. We're talk, talking to the NRA. How is that any different from Liberal talking to the Chinese, or you know, Labor talking to whoever? You know, it's is it illegal for them to have uh, foreign donations? If it is, then you know, don't do it. But if if other people are doing it, then what is the difference? It's it's interesting that you know, do we scrutinise? And I said this on my show. It's coming out tomorrow. Do we scrutinise uh, get up donations? Do we scrutinise? 
developer donations to the Liberal Party, big tobacco, for an example, if it's legal, you know, alcohol companies, uh, you know, anything. Do we scrutinize that as well? And it's good. I I like your position on that because I like the fact that you won't, uh, you know, whether you agree or disagree in regards to that, I would have... The way I would deal with it is say, well, that's up to them. You need to go speak to them about that, you know. And, yeah, yeah. and, and a lot of organisations, uh, especially shooting in this country, have sort of – I'm not a big fan of One Nation in regards to what they've said about they've dumped firearms Personally in. not a fan of, of their policies either, and, you know. I didn't put my hand up for One Nation. Um, but, you know, the, the scapegoating of One Nation based on this – when you know it's just it's one of those and i go back to the fact that i kind of understand how the media works it's insightful you know they're trying to incite public opinion you know it's it's almost like um you know how much reach can i get on my social media post today it's it's kind of i look at these things now with a little bit of um skepticism i guess one final supplementary question to to that do you think we can learn some uh, advocacy techniques from the way they do things yeah. Oh, who's this? The NRA. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, and look, you know, um, I, I don't uh, read a lot of what the NRA does per se, uh, but I follow the um, SCI, so the Safari Club International, and they're another one that are very big on advocacy. So advocating for the rights of hunters, um, and you know, some of the things that they've they've always said is, you know, we need to be changing the conversation. Um, for for too long, we've kind of been on the back foot where we're trying to defend our position and sort of say, well, hang on a minute, we're not, you know, we're not bad people. Um, and it's like we actually need to change the way we're 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 talking about this. We need to talk about the benefits that we bring to society. We need to talk about, um, you know, the. Um, the positive stuff that that hunting, you know, brings to um, our wildlife management. I mean, you've got these ridiculous pages out there, save the fox, save the feral cat. It's like, really? Really? You know, you're saving one animal and condemning hundreds, if not thousands of other animals. And it's drawing attention to that, I think, um, that we can do positive work around um, advocacy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from overseas advocacy agencies and things mm. and how they do it. I hope that's something, and, you know, I really like what you're saying, to be brutally honest. I hope that's something you can take to, and I don't want to bring these other people into it, but, you know, uh, what you're saying to me now, I really enjoy and I think I 100% agree with you, but is a stark contrast to what other states in um, the country think from the Shooters and Fishers Party. So I'm hoping that's something uh, that you can you can push forward at a national level and try and change that culture because throughout the New South Wales election, a lot of the things you've just said, which, you know, I'm 100% behind you, I would think I would like people like you to represent my interests than people uh, that, would, that would say things against One Nation or the NRA, which is yeah. what we've seen yep. from the, the New South Wales SFP uh, in regards to these issues and you're saying the complete opposite but I agree with you. Yeah, I think I think it's it almost comes back to like politics is very similar to where we are in hunting, right? That, you know, um, as I said earlier, hunters on social media end up on the back foot where they're like, well, I'm too scared to actually say what I think or post my pictures because I'm scared I'm going to get attacked. And it's almost become that in politics. You know, we have become so politically correct that we are afraid to say anything that kind of goes against what the the 
popular messages in the mainstream media for fear of being labelled a, a far-right extremist or, you know, these labels are thrown around so so easily. You know, it's like, well, I'm sorry, just because I disagree with your point doesn't make me a far-right extremist. I'm not a far-right extremist at all. Um, you know, but it, it comes down to, to fear. We, we have been almost browbeaten into submission that, you know, don't get off the party line, don't get off the popular thing. This is what um, is being pushed. But if you actually look, and I often don't read the headlines as much as I read the comments on social media, and you look at the comments on social media, and this is why I go back to this, this idea that the major parties are running scared because the vast majority of Australians are going, you know what, I've really had enough of your bull crap. I've had enough of being lied to. I've had enough of your empty promises. Um, I don't believe what you're telling me anymore. Um, and I think that we're seeing people kind of wake up a little bit and, and say, um, I, I've, I'm not just going to go with your clickbait headline and, and agree with what you're saying. And now we, we've seen that, and again, I don't want to touch on the One Nation thing because, you know, I don't support their policies per se, but I also don't agree with how they've been handled. Now, you saw that with uh, Koshi and Darren Hinch where they attacked Pauline Hanson. Now, you read the general pu public comments and and nobody agreed with how she was treated. Now, people could say, I don't personally like Pauline Hanson, but what you did to her was atrocious. What you did to her was wrong, and we are seeing a lot more of that, and I think that's why the, the major parties are running scared, because people are going, well, enough. And, and yeah, that's kind of why I put my hand up, and it's like, well, I agree, enough. You know, and if you look at um, the history of politics, you know, right back to Rome, um, the Senate was formed to, to be the voice of the people. And that's how politics should, should work. It's um, the politicians are supposed to be there as a representative of the people, the voice of the people to help shape, shape policies. We don't have that anymore. Our, politi our political system is broken. It is, it is completely self-interest that, that drives these people. And we need people from minor parties to stand up and go, well, enough. We're going to say we want the power back in the people, we want to actually give the people back the voice um, and, and start making some sensible changes. I think uh, all, all shooters, at least the ones that I, I speak to, friends, you know, people that know me as well, and even people outside that I speak to, they just want solid, unapologetic uh, advocacy. And I guess, and people always think, they say all the time, people that don't even listen to my show, oh, he wants this, uh, semi autos, he wants to concealed carry. It's, it's, I mean, I'm not saying I don't want those things, but at the end of the day too, I think they just want an unapologetic stance where if someone starts talking about the United States, if someone starts talking about, do you want to, which as you know is the common ter terminology, do you want to weaken gun laws that people are able to tackle and handle those questions appropriately without selling hunters and shooters down the river to the current status quo gun laws? But, but do you notice even with that, you know, it's, it's, it's common rhetoric that is always rolled out that is, it's... It's a it's a catchphrase, you know. Oh, you want to weaken gun laws? Well, no. Let's sit down and debate that because no, I don't want to weaken gun laws. I have no problem with us having, you know, I don't want to have my gun up on a wall, you know, um, in easy reach of anyone. We we pay a lot of money for our firearms, so you know, I certainly don't want to have them just available for anyone to come and steal or a child to pick up. So I have no problem with our safe storage laws. So 
it's it's not so much the gun laws that are the issue. It's just this this idea that gun owners are criminals in waiting. Well, I'm sorry, we're not. There's also many, many issues surrounding the, the NFA, which is the last probably couple of topics we'll probably finish off on, I think, is, you know, uh, appearance laws. So when we say, and I, I know you probably weren't meaning it in this way, but, you know, there's nothing wrong. There's many things wrong with the National Firearms Agreement, such as, you know, appearance laws, such as things like, uh, you know, suppressors. Yeah, just to name a few. Uh, all the issues people are having in regards to a registry, you know, and, and I'm, I'm obviously wanting to remove the bureaucracy, not increase the bureaucracy and well it it comes down to it's it's almost um we're a victim of our obsession with hollywood right so um i'm going to get really philosophical here um you know this goes to how young people are embracing veganism because disney won't show a lion eating a zebra you know the lion's got to go out and eat sushi you know so it's kind of this thing that 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 we have become a victim of hollywood you know so um suppressors Anyone talks suppressors, oh, silences, oh, you're going to be like James Bond. You're going to go out and just shoot people and nobody – someone can shoot a gun next door and I won't even hear it and oh, I'm scared. So it's it's this fear-mongering that, that happens because they actually don't understand the role of a suppressor. A suppressor is no different than, you know, it's a tool to, to reduce um, – the, the noise pollution on the user as well as the general public it doesn't it doesn't silence a rifle it just reduces some of that um, ability to to damage our hearing now in a society that's so obsessed with health and safety I don't understand why we can't apply common sense to a suppressor we let fear and this Hollywood idea of what a suppressor is dictate how we actually look at it and it's the same with appearance laws oh my god that's a scary looking gun i saw that on a movie that you know can go out and kill lots of people i I posted something on my facebook page yesterday it was three rifles the exact same rifle but all different looking and the rifle hasn't changed just because it's black and has a pistol grip doesn't doesn't mean it's it's capable of any more damage than the traditional looking woodstock you know, appearance, judging something by appearance, it's kind of, you know, to take it to the to the nth degree, as a society, we've come to the point where we don't judge people by their colour or their appearance, but we can still look at a gun and go, oh, that one looks scarier than that one. It's even scary when, you know, I speak to people and just as recently as a month ago to, at a range and someone you know, a prominent person that runs that range and has talked me about, you know, appearance laws and how how they're good. And, you know, if you're in Martin Place, for an example, here in Sydney, that, you know, if you had some sort of semi, people are going to be a lot more scared. I'm, and I was like, well, I don't want anyone pointing any type of firearm yeah. at yeah. me, regardless if it's bat black or it's it's <laughs> wood or... If you've got a firearm pointed at you, you're not I'm looking not going to be happy, it. no. And and it, it makes no sense, but it's it's it can be a purple firearm. I'm still going to be scared. Exactly. It's just you know, where do we go from here to finish off? I guess that's the question. Where do we go from here uh, and, and push forward? What do you think? Yeah, to me, I think um, hunters and 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 firearms users, which we're traditionally people that just kind of you know we we keep our head down, we go about our business, we we don't often get behind the parties that are actually trying to um, support us 
we're a bit apathetic as as you know a population and i think that if you want change then you need to start supporting the parties that are actually out there trying to change things um you need to get behind the people that want to be your voice in in canberra and and in politics so um don't be apathetic don't just go with the flow don't just go with what you've always done but actually look at the policies of of all the parties you know don't just Buy the media headlines. Don't buy what, you know, the, the newspaper says about Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party because they'll tell you all sorts of things. Go on the website and have a look at our policies for yourself. Um, you know, if, you, if you're interested in One Nation, go and look at their policies. Don't just believe even what, you know, the, the popular rhetoric that they're saying. Actually read their policies and go, does this make sense to me? Be an informed voter. Exactly, and uh, if, you, if you do get elected, uh, you'll be away in Canberra a fair bit then, won't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to fly up to Canberra and say my bit. Um, as you've oh. probably seen, I'm, I can have some strong opinions on things. So, Very good. Anything else you'd like to add before finishing off? No, no, thank you for, again for the opportunity. And um, look, you know, I've, I've got like, the, you know, thanks to, to Mr Morrison and his, his short election campaign, uh, period i've got literally like 20 something days to to campaign and so my chances are pretty slim particularly being new to politics so my name's not exactly out there but you know i'm going to get out there and tell people as much as i can what we're standing for and what some of the changes that we want to bring about and yeah we'll see where it goes who will be elected do you think in come four or five weeks labor or liberal i don't know i really don't know it's um i and I, once upon a time, I would have said, I hope liberal. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping for an absolute coup and we see something completely new come out of politics. I really do. I think I'm hoping for, you know, a little bit of a bloodless revolution that, you know, we, we, we see the people rise up and say, you know, we're, we're changing things. But that, that's what it comes down to, I think. And I talk about this with laws. It's up to the people. And we saw this with, uh, you know, greyhound racing here in New South Wales when they tried to ban it. Frankly, I think I probably watched one greyhound race in my whole life, but I supported those people because I know what it was like when they did the same things to us in, in 1996. And it's just a sad state of affairs. You know? Yeah, you get people jumping on board every Melbourne Cup. The the you know ban horse racing comes out. You know, all of those sorts of things. You know. But you know what? People get what they vote for at the end of the day. I mean, even just yep. here, just in New South Wales, I mean, Troy Grant was one of the catalysts behind that, you know, for the member for Dubbo. And uh, he, he obviously stood down. That was the end of his career, basically, at, at, at the election just a couple of weeks ago. But the Nationals still got elected in the seat of Dubbo. Like, it was close. It was very close. But, uh, you know, even the guy that was instrumental in, in the attack on Greyhound Racing under the Baird government, even though he retired, was the Nationals were still able to hold their seat. So I always say, well, you, you get what you're given if you're going to vote for the same idiots then in in essence you deserve what you get so if there's further restrictions on things like greyhound racing well that's what you deserve because again you voted in the nationals even after the the treacherous act of mr grant and the nationals yeah and it's a little bit like the you know the people that go into the polling booth and you know do the donkey vote and then complain about politics and it's like well if you're going to complain you do something your vote that that's what we have a vote for is as our ability to implement change don't just complain about what's broken do something to fix it 
you always think too, we need like maybe like a, not Clive Palmer, because I was reading an article the other day about Clive Palmer potentially having the, the balance of power in Parliament. I thought, where is that? I say this all the time, a lot on my show, where is that rich shooter? Surely of 1.2 million shooters, we must have that rich billionaire shooter that will throw dollars at us just like Clive Palmer is at uh, the media right now to get elected in. Yeah, how much is he buying the election? And I look at this and, you know... $35 million from, he spent. Yeah, I know. And and coming from, from somebody who's worked in marketing, I sort of understand how marketing works as well. And um, it's like, it's criminal how much our politicians spend on advertising. And it's, you know, I, as a... As a citizen, I sit there and I think, why do we allow this? Why do we allow them to waste millions of dollars putting their face up there and saying, vote for me? You know, it's like, actually, you know, with the Shooters and Fishers and Farmers Party, you know, we'll, we'll cry poor, but it's like what it forces us to do is actually get out there and talk to people about our policies. We don't have money to go and put our billboards up everywhere and our TV ads everywhere and our sponsored posts everywhere. So we have to go, okay, well, we're going to actually do some good old-fashioned campaigning and tell people what we stand for um, because we we have a tiny budget, you know, like I, I think it's something like $2,000 per candidate that we have, you know, Australia-wide. How do you compete against your, your Clive Palmer who's throwing millions at it? That's why we um, need that you- rich shooter. I don't know where they are <laughs> and if they're listening to this show, please put your hand up and contact me. We need – I mean, they're even saying he's probably going to get around 8 to 8.5% of the vote. So $35 million buys 8, 8, to 8.5% of the vote. So. And yet, and yet you look at the Clive uh, – sorry, the Palmer United Party, and I couldn't tell you a single candidate that's running because every post is Clive Palmer's face. You know, it's like – yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. I, it's it's a it's a strange system. <laughs> strange to say the least, but it's up to the people. I always say. To <laughs> yeah, make, and, to and make I decision. also you also look at the fact that um, you know we we have compulsory voting in Australia is that democratic, but it's the system we have. You know, it's like. Um, Everybody yeah. has to has to cast a vote. We live in a democracy, they say, until it's election time. Then you have to vote, otherwise you get a fine. It's yeah, exactly. Crazy. Anyway. Anyway, Rebecca Byfield joins me here on AHP to have a chat to me about uh, the Senate run for the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party in uh, that little island off Australia called Tasmania. So thank you for uh, joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.